Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with J. Robert King. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm John Miro. And you've tuned in to a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is an opportunity to sit down with some of the most amazing science fiction writers and creators and explore their craft in our never-ending quest to improve our own. Indeed, an ongoing quest, an ongoing quest of badassery, epictude, and awesomeness. And and it stretches out before us, John, like a, like a, a road of adventure, does it not? The road is gold. It is paved with gold. And I'm looking forward to seeing where our guest today has hid his spray paint <laughs> of gold so we can tell another writer how to use it. Indeed. Indeed. It's literary gold is what it's paved in, by golly. Uh, and, and instantly I'm riffing on Wizard of Oz. And there's there's a story in there somewhere, too. Uh, dear friends, John Miro, who has been guest host on this show, been co-host on this show. John, I don't think you've ever been a guest writer on the show, have you? I need to really pony up and get in there, don't I? I think you ought. I think it would be badass to to sit down and brainstorm one of your stories on the show. Uh, uh, but, dear friends, do check out the awesomeness that he is crafting over at ServingWorlds.com, his podcast, his Patreon feed, uh, uh, the, the, the epic story worlds that he creates, the, the Walk the Fire universe, the Far Lost universe, asunder so many tales streaming from his brain like light from a prism. I just came up with that. I'm pretty proud of that. On the fly, my friend. I want some of what you're drinking. Uh, Well, I'll tell you what. I'll pour you some. Sit back and relax. Because, John, I want to introduce you to our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. May I? Please do. Ah, very good. Well, sit back, relax. Now, during a recent run through Pinterest, my love of fantasy maps was rekindled. And God, Pinterest, what a time sink, but what an awesome time sink. But I found all these fabulous fantasy maps. And and here's the thing. At first glance, when you look at one of these things, it's overwhelming. And, and you start looking for, for patterns that help it make sense. And slowly, the chaos starts to coalesce and take shape. And you read the names of countries and cities and zero in on unique landmarks with evocative names. And slowly, the story of the map and the stories behind it starts to make sense. And that's very much how I felt when I started researching our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. When you look at the sheer scope and breadth of his achievements in the realm of speculative fiction, from editorial works to his cornucopia of short fiction to tie-in projects with the industry's biggest video game franchises, it's overwhelming. But soon patterns start to emerge and you realize the epic story behind the map of his career is really quite simple. Dude loves storytelling and has invested his heart and soul into crafting fabulous tales. Now, the first scratches of ink on the map of his life as a storyteller began in the third grade when one of his teachers read the first Chronicles of Narnia novels to his class. Now, he was intrigued and over the next year sought out and read the rest of the series. This is in fourth grade. He had never experienced that kind of immersion into another world before, and it utterly captured his imagination. 
Fast forward to 1988, when he graduates from Valparaiso University with a BA in theology and the humanities, during which time he's recognized as a Christ College Scholar of very high distinction, participated in the Cambridge Study Program, and, and I love this, trod the boards in the role of Paul in the play A Few Shots at Paradise Bar. Yes, dear friends, our guest host is yet another, I'm going to say it, thespian. Just because that's what we are, man. We're thespians. Yay, verily. Yay, verily. Huzzah. Actors, theater people who who delight in, in, in telling tales on the stage. Now, words were already his playthings. And after college, he worked as an editor at places like Human Kinetics, a sports publisher. Around the same time, he was started designing adventures and supplements for TSR's iconic settings like Forgotten Realms and Ravenloft. So when he became an editor at TSR in 1991, it came as no big surprise. Now, around that same year, or just a year later, rather, he published his first novel, Heart of Midnight, in TSR's world of Ravenloft. More novels followed in Ravenloft, the epic Dragonlance setting, and a trilogy in the Planescape setting, The Blood Wars, which was comprised of blood hostages, abysmal warriors, and planar powers, the last of which received the 1997 Origins Award for Best Game-Related Fiction. He continued to design supplements for Forgotten Realms, Dragonlance, and Ravenloft. He also wrote two tales targeting younger readers, Rogues to Riches and Summerhill Hounds. Now, here's an interesting sidebar. Around 1995, Houghton Mifflin founded Great Source, an imprint to produce a line of writing manuals for kindergarten to 12th grade students. Our guest host has contributed over 2,000 pages to those manuals through his work with Sobranic Inc., lending his passion and insight to young writers everywhere. Maybe some of our listeners out there were infected, uh, guided, guided by our guest host's discreet tutelage. Uh, now... At this point, our guest host's career becomes a rat's nest of networking, parallel interests, mutual acquaintances, and just plain dumb luck. Uh, let's see. Working for TSR, he worked with Jim Lauder, an editor, artist, and all-around renaissance man who led several best-selling book lines for TSR and would go on to pen comics for Image, DC, and Marvel, led the editorial efforts of Green Knight Publishing, and so much more. He also met Jeff Grubb who was on vacation on our guest host's first day, but our guest host still remembers being pointed out which cube was Jeff's. Uh, it featured a battered chair entombed in great mounds and stacks of paper. Later, he would describe Grubb's unbridled passion and creative leadership as infectious excess. Then around 2000, when Wizards of the Coast took over TSR, it was Jeff who urged our guest host to write something in the Magic the Gathering novella line, which led to two more trilogies, The Invasion Cycle in 2000-2001 and The Onslaught Cycle in 2000-2003. Now look at that. That's three years. Six books, three years. Pretty serious math, people. Pretty badass. Now, during that time, he wrote the much-acclaimed Mad Merlin trilogy, an Arthurian saga published through Tor Books. And Tor also published the very well-received Sherlock Holmes novel from our guest host titled Shadow of Reichenbach Falls. 
Okay, now, while writing two other stories in the Magic the Gathering series, he worked with Will McDermott, and he was impressed by the sheer breadth of McDermott's skill set and the scope of his connections. And he met Ree Sosby in the late 1990s when he accepted her proposal for a story set in the newly acquired Legend of the Five Rings game world because he was impressed with her ability to craft rich, authentic, and compelling characters. Okay, so those are the threats. Let's start trying to tie all this together. Our guest host was continuing to write in the Magic the Gathering story world and had drafted a novel that was just too damn grim and dark for the setting. So his friend, Jim Lauder, knew Mark Gascoigne of the astonishing Angry Robot books. And he knew Mark was looking for a supernatural thriller, and he told our guest host as much. Emboldened to submit his novel... Angel of Death was accepted and published in 2009, followed by Death's Disciples in 2010. Both are listed as metaphysical suspense novels, which is just another way of saying we have no freaking clue where to pigeonhole these amazing stories. So we leave it to you, the reader, to figure out. Not the first time that's happened on the roundtable. Uh, then, in the late 2000s, ArenaNet was looking for a novelization for their wildly successful Guild Wars line and had tapped Jeff Krubb, Will McDermott, and Ree Sosby to develop the novel. Now, our guest host was given the opportunity to submit a proposal for the novel, but he didn't know the world. So he bought the Guild Wars games and played the heck out of them with his sons and got up to speed on the story and the world. His proposal was one of a handful accepted, and thus Edge of Destiny came to be on bookshelves. Friends, the map of his career so far is a rich and intricate creation, but there's lots of room at the edges for more storytelling explorations, including a tale of a demon stranded in Wisconsin for the Ed Greenwood group titled The Incubus Tweets, dropping in just a few days. Friends, he can ride a unicycle. When deciding between being a writer and being an artist, he decided on writing because paper was cheaper than paint. And when he was 16 years old, he told his grandmother his writing name would be Rizwald Zipper. His grandmother told him his real name was weird enough. Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the round table, J. Robert King. Rob, holy crap, uh, uh, an epic saga of adventure and storytelling behind you. An open road, clearly paved in literary gold, stretches before you. I am so delighted that we can catch you here in between those two points and, and discuss some story goodness with you, man. Thanks so much for making the time. Well, thank you so much for having me here, Dave. I have to say, I, I feel like you understand my background better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> did it, did, were there any egregious errors in there, Rob? Did I miss? No, actually, that was pretty spot on. I mean, uh, aside from being, you know, too generous, it was pretty spot on. <laughs> I, I, I have been known to take hyperbole to a whole new level. Mr. Robinson uh, is a profiler for the Science Fiction Writers Association of America. Don't Ooh, let him like hunt that. you down. That's right. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm also a professional herald, so <laughs> I got to be good at this stuff. Uh, Rob, let's dive into this, man. I am keen to start our 20 minutes with J. Robert King. I'm going to set the clock here. And Does the clock still work? 
I have no idea. We ignore it so much. I'm sure it's developed a complex by now. Uh, uh, and I, I don't think this is going to be any different, but uh, we'll find out. I'll let you know in 20-ish minutes. <laughs> All right, Rob, let's dive into this. Um, and I'm going to start off uh, with, in, in, obviously, I've stalked you extensively on the internet. And through various interviews, uh, one with Thomas Jane Knight, one with Harry Markov, uh, uh, you were exploring some very intriguing concepts regarding Angel of Death that was published through Angry Robot Books and had some very interesting things to say about, about writing evil and about creating evil characters. There was even mention that, that you might write a, a, a blog post about it, and I don't know if that ever came to pass. Uh, but in a recent discussion between you and I that will be showcased over on the Ander Libram podcast, you had mentioned that you've dug pretty deep into the darkness. Uh, and <laughs> the Incubus tweets being a lighthearted tale is an effort to, to perhaps lighten the tone a little bit. But let's let's take a step back and at least observe that darkness that you've that you've wandered through for a while. What what do you recommend for writers when they set out to explore the nature of evil in their stories? Well, that's that's an excellent question. You know, the first novel that I published was Heart of Midnight, which was a werewolf tale. Mm -hmm. And. In that, I was sort of trying to do the psychology of the monster, um, trying to figure out, so what is a monster thinking? How, how does a monster deal with the world around? And the disturbing realization that I came to is that the monster is not really that different from the rest of us. <laughs> um, we all have these thoughts within our heads that are not acceptable thoughts. Uh, and we do a really good job of at least preventing those thoughts from going out into the wider world. But of course, they're still in our heads and we, we prevent them from getting to ourselves as well. But, you know, I think there's, there's always that undercurrent. Um, so the first novel that I did was Heart of Midnight. Angel of Death, which is a novel that you just referenced, was one that I had actually written around 1997 originally. I had another novel that I wrote that I was really excited about, and I submitted it, and it was not getting any traction. A lot of people seemed to be interested at first and then kind of dropped their interest. And for that reason, I became very frustrated and angry. And so I thought, okay, I will write you a very commercial novel. <laughs> now, the commercial it's novel... Like rage writing. It's, really it's a rage writing, right? It's like, oh, God, fine, I'll give you what you want, bastards. Right. The, the novel that I wrote, Angel of Death, is is actually not that commercial. It's the story of it's a first person account of the Angel of Death in Chicago. It's this is a person who is tasked with killing everybody who is supposed to die in the Chicago, Milwaukee, uh, megalopolis area, and his job is to make sure that people who die die in a way that befits their life. So, in other words. You shouldn't have, as we had in The Godfather, you shouldn't have a mafia Don have a heart attack in his backyard while playing with his grandchildren. That you know, He should be shot. By <laughs> There's no poetry in that. Yes. <laughs> right, exactly. What did you discover about evil while you were writing that? You know, I, I grew up with Lewis and Tolkien as the sort of foundation for fantasy writing. And mm. both of them have a very 
Judeo-Christian worldview where there is good and there is evil. And of course, that's a very appealing view of good and evil because, you know, there's the white, there are the white hats and the black hats. But as I've delved into it more, as I say, you know, it's quite clear that evil is sort of a part of all of us. And those who are evil most often think that they're doing good. You know, if you look at these suicide bombers, they're young men who think that they are doing something great, not something terrible. They think that they are advancing their cause. And the rest of us look at it and, you know, we see orcs, basically. But the fact is that if you get into the mindset of somebody who's doing something like that, they think that they're the hero. They everyone's the hero them. of their own. Yeah, everyone's the hero of their own story. Right. And so that's part of the difficulty is that not only does that mean that we fundamentally misunderstand evil in the sense that we look at an evil person and think that person knows he or she is evil, but we also fundamentally misunderstand ourselves. We think we're the right ones and everybody else is wrong. And so when you get into that area where you start to realize, okay, evil is a kind of manifestation of a sort of broken character and we all have to one extent or another, broken characters, then there's the strong possibility <laughs> that I am not the hero. There is the strong possibility that I may actually be the villain. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly in certain people's lives, I am the villain. I'm not the good guy. You know, right. I am the bad guy. So at that point, you have to start grappling with, well, what can I do to not be the villain? You know, how can we get this whole thing to work out? How can we be sort of accepting of each other, but also at the same time recognize when something that is truly monstrous must be addressed? You know, we can't, it can't be total relativity in terms of ethics and morality. But on the other hand, it can't be that we, it's not elves and orcs. I'm sorry, folks. You know. <laughs> <laughs> we need some shades of gray in between those those bright white and, and dark darks. Somewhere right. between 39 and 42 shades of gray. Oh, dude, <laughs> dude. You went there. You had to go there. <laughs> we'll be back with more of our conversation with J. Robert King after this brief promotional break. I'm the first. The first of a new kind of human being. The first and only true artificial intelligence. Not a huge fan of that term, though. I prefer not to use the term stranded time traveler. I am merely on an extended vacation. Against my will. Talking with normal people is almost impossible. I'm constantly on guard. What did you do over the weekend? I definitely didn't drink any blood. (laughs) I'd never do a thing like that. I mean, brother, when you crash your spaceship on Earth, you are pretty much shit out of luck. We don't need aliens anymore. Not when people have Twitter and YouTube and podcasts and Periscope and Voibox and Winger and heaven knows what else. I don't see the point in anyone living in the coffin. Right? Who benefits from our silence? Certainly not us. Look, I could take out this interview guy. I mean, I could, like, wrap this chain around his neck and kill him right now. Do you have any more questions for us? Well, I got a few, so if you want to hold off on wrapping around the... The chain, that would be good. This is Jared Axelrod. Join me on the voice of Free Planet X, where I interview aliens and time travelers 
vampires and witches, advanced AIs and ancient monstrosities. It's This American Life for a science fictional universe, and it's only at planetx.libsyn.com. Now, let's get back to the conversation with J. Robert King. So, so Rob, what is the purpose of horror then? Because what you've described absolutely resonates. We under, I, I think many of our listeners will, will, will grok on what you're throwing down. Uh, but then that raises the question of if you are trying to write a horror story, uh, uh, there is, and, and I might be wrong here, but is there not, I, I even hesitate to say this, is it not a celebration, not a celebration, but an exploration, uh, 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 an unflinching exploration of those very, very dark shades of, of nuance of humanity, whether it takes the form of a werewolf or an angel of death or a serial killer or, or an antagonist of, of, of any kind. Does that not require some sort of zeroing in on that aspect of the story? Well, absolutely. And, you know, as I said, I took as foundation uh, the work of C.S. Lewis and and J.R.R. Tolkien, and they both created kind of beautiful worlds. And I that was my original intent when I became an author was I wanted to create beautiful worlds. I wanted to create places that I would want to live in. And here, 26 novels later, I have failed miserably (laughs) to do that. I don't seem to have it in me to find this beautiful place. I, for some reason, what I write tends to gravitate toward those aspects of our existence that are not beautiful. And so when you ask, what is the purpose of horror? I'm like the worst person to give you an answer to that, even though I've written a lot of horror I can't tell you why anyone should want to read this <laughs> or, or, <laughs> or why I am writing it. I'm writing it in a sense because I can't seem to write other things. And maybe that's the answer for the readers. Maybe the reason they are reading it is because they can't read other things. Maybe what has to happen is an exploration of these things so that we can get to something else. Well, the flip answer is that you've created, instead of all your life looking for worlds that you wanted to live in, you've created ideal worlds to run away from. But the unflip (laughs) answer is that art is supposed to disturb and art is supposed to ask questions that are hard without easy answers. Right. Well, I think that's true. I think that's true. But I think you're giving me too much credit. I mean, that would mean that I I didn't say intentionally, man. Roll with it. (laughs) Well, and you had also said in that in that interview with Thomas J. Knight, you had invoked your origins of of Lewis and and Tolkien, and they wrote what they saw to be the true heart of the world, and they believed it to be a good place. You are doing the exact same thing that they are doing. It's just your revelations and your discoveries have come to a different conclusion. Yes, well, and it's unfortunate. I mean, I think that I, and maybe this is true of most horror writers, I think that we tend to be idealists. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the reason that we write horror is that we see what ought to be and then we see what is and we can't seem to reconcile the two. And so we end up focusing on the things that aren't or the things that shouldn't be that are rather than focusing on something kind of glorious and beautiful, you know. There there is a there's a frustration 
that's involved in being a horror writer. It's a matter of looking and thinking, why is this what we have? <laughs> <laughs> and then and then poking and prodding at that. Yeah. Right. And and so you 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 know you talked about incubus tweets, and that is an attempt to, on the one hand, write in a in a horror setting, Helmaw, and write in a horror vein because you're basically looking at i mean you know the main character is a demon who is an incubus uh who is certainly not intending the best for the people that he encounters and yet it's also an attempt that the the tragic approach is that the hero is unmade by all of his faults and the comedic approach is that the hero is made ridiculous by all of his faults, but mm. in the end is not unmade as you know, things work out. Mm. And so tragedy and comedy are very similar beasts. It's just whether you live or die at the end <laughs> as to whether this is funny or, or, or terrifying. You know? <laughs> well, and God, John, we've kind of thrown Rob on the therapist couch here on the round table. He's um, in a safe I'm, place. It's all he is, right. Yes. I'm going to turn the mic over to you, man, and and maybe we can pull him off the off the therapist couch and and uh, go in a different writerly exploration path. Sure. Let's let's talk about Heart of Midnight again. Let's go back to the roots. And when you wrote that, was was the idea to explore the horror, or was the idea to explore a real person enduring a harsher reality than he expected to face? I think that's a that's a very insightful question. I mean, the, the main character of Heart of Midnight is a werewolf. And again, some spoilers, but this is a novel that's over 20 years old. So I think you're safe, sir. If you haven't, if you haven't read it yet, you probably won't read it. So <laughs> <laughs> he's a werewolf, which is, of course, a man who is infected by lycanthropy and therefore involuntarily turns into a wolf occasionally, doesn't want this to be his lot in life. Well, he discovers, spoilers, uh, that he actually isn't a werewolf, but a wolf were. Now, that seems like a very subtle difference, except that a werewolf is a person who becomes a wolf. (laughs) A wolf were is a monster who masquerades as a person, is, is something that is fundamentally wrong, or that yeah, they pulled the rug out from under you. Holy crap. Right. And so he discovers this halfway through the book. He realizes he wasn't infected with this. This is his essence. This is who he is. And so that, of course, is, again, we're back on a therapist couch. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. That's, you did. You know, you did. that's tough stuff when you realize, okay, it's not that I'm a good person who has this problem. I am a problem pretending to be a person and i think that that's part of the level of horror is when you have somebody again the idealist who wants to be good and has this sort of dark side ending up finding out that no you are the dark side you aren't the the wants to be good part is that's the illusion i have to draw a comparison here for you yeah. Right. You, your, your, your work. You, you feel very strongly is too dark. May I point out the exact same plot that has inspired you has inspired, as I'm sure you were, many other people, including Mulder and Scully meet the Were Monster this season on X Files. <laughs> and I don't make this to make fun of your work. I make it fun. This is the enduring question: Is was I made this way, and I have no choice to be a monster, or can I rebel? Right. 
Right. I mean, it's it's this question in the original Frankenstein. You know, mm. the monster is not really the monster. The monster is Victor, who creates a life and then completely abandons it. Yeah. You know, um, and yet the monster is a monster because even though he's an unnatural creature that has been abandoned by his creator and therefore sort of deserves to be full of rage. The fact is he is still responsible for the terrible things that he does. Steinbeck know? of mice and men. Yeah. Right. We all have that power of choice. And, and the, the, the confrontation of the monster within us harkens back to where this conversation all started with the revelation that, you know, we are all to some degree or another monsters. And in the course of our lives, we are, we conf- are forced often to confront actions that may not be on par with, with a wolf wear or the angel of death. Uh, but everyone has that experience of being confronted of falling short of their own ideals. Right. And, and, and that's depending on how dramatic that is determines whether it's, it's epic fantasy or, or dark horror. I Excellent. And the dividing line isn't when the book closes, the dividing line isn't man, you wrote a really downer of a book. Uh, the dividing line may, may be the space that you borrow or rent in the reader's head that leads him to think about that to the point where he has to decide after he's closed the book, whether it was a light tale or a dark tale by how it affects his life going forward. How's that for meta and positive? Dude, dude. See, Rob, you are leading us to the light, man. <laughs> <laughs> you are the light bringer. Oh, wait, wasn't that Lucifer? Never mind. Sorry. Well, Lucifer was the light bringer. <laughs> it's also the train in the tunnel. That's yes, exactly, exactly. And you really, know, it's the, it's up to the reader to decide which you are. Right. That you were talking about the last line. Now, the last line of Heart of Midnight is the companion of Casimir, who is the wolfware. After Casimir's death, he goes off and he's standing uh, at the edge of this cliff, and he has this kind of fevered vision of angels flying toward him across the skies. Mm. And then as he's looking, he sees that the angels have fangs. That's the line is the angels have fangs. (laughs) And then he steps forward into their niveous jaws. I mean, in other words, the last line of that book is when you say it's up to the reader to decide, okay, is this, Happy or sad? <laughs> is he is he getting just desserts or is it is it a redemption of some kind? Right. I, and the last line of Angel of Death has a woman being sucked into an escalator in a Macy's store in Chicago. Uh, I mean, in other words, there's a broken down escalator that causes her to just be sort of devoured. The point is. I, <laughs> you're being very kind to me, John, when you say it's up to the reader to decide at the end. Uh, well, I have been unkind to my readers, and in those two novels have left them with no option of thinking <laughs> this is all happiness, <laughs> this is all happy. Well, I could you know, argue a lot on this, but the point is yes. not whether you're right or wrong as the writer or whether the reader has a different view. It's that we are still talking about this how many decades later? Good point. Right. Good point. Good topic worth discussing. Mic drop. 
Well, <laughs> okay. The, 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 the clock, whether it's working or not, has started to shake its fist at me, but I want to ask one last question okay. uh, before, before we let Rob go. Um, Rob, this is back in 2011 when you were talking about Guild Wars and Edge of Destiny. Uh, you made this statement that, in a way, we're moving out of the age of authors. Uh, authors are those who get the credit for what is often a very collaborative effort. And in light of your work with so many licensed products, in light of the work that you're doing with the Ed Greenwood group, with Incubus Tweets, and just the general tone of the internet and its collaborative technologies, this this seems even more true today. Now, that was, what, uh, five years ago. Do you still hold to that, do you think? I think, I, yeah, absolutely. I think that's completely true. And and this most recent book, Incubus Tweets, is a perfect example of that. Um, I wrote the book as a social media novel. So it's told through tweets and texts and selfies and posts of all kinds. Uh, when you get the book, if you get it in a print version or if you get it as an ebook, you have all of these things collated for you so that there is one sort of narrative that goes through, but it's all these different ways of reporting. Whereas after I finished the book, I thought, well, you know, it seems ridiculous to write a book like this and then not to make it a social media opportunity. And so Frank Demonkowski has set up his own Facebook page. And so you'll see pictures of the demon, who is me, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and he is basically posting things on Facebook and on Twitter in basically real time to what happens in the novel. And not only is he doing that, but then people are responding to him. And my greatest regret is that the novel had to be written before I could capture <laughs> everyone else's, you know, their, their collaboration in the development of this ridiculous character. In Dude, you totally set. need to add the, add the comments to the Facebook post to the next edition of the book. Right. There needs to be a kind of director's cut where I can cut out some of my bad jokes and put in... Really <laughs> you never got tired of us people. being meta enough. You had to go and make it more meta in your meta. Oh, God, yes. that's we we need to make that happen, Rob. Seriously, I think that would be a great you know uh, uh, anniversary edition of Incubus tweets. Now with comments, now with the comment thread. Now that well, and, you know, and, it's interesting because people will show up on Frank's page and they'll be new friends, and they at first I think that they're bewildered. What is this? You know, there's a demon talking to me about being a demon in a church someplace in Wisconsin, and then they sort of scroll down the page and they, in reverse order, see what's happening in Frank's life, which is what we do anyway when we go to somebody's Facebook page. Sure. And at some point, something clicks. They get it. They look at it and they say, ah, I know what this is. This is, <laughs> this is something this, this fun. This is theater. It, right. It is theater. And, it's, it, and not only is it theater, but it's actually – interactive improvisational theater it's it right. isn't scripted there is a script but the script is sort of three steps back from what we're dealing with instead right. you're actually are interacting with the character in this novel mm -hmm. in real time and you can make a comment and he'll respond to you you know um well that's the ultimate of what you were saying about yes i think the age of the author is is waning 
I think that when you live in a collaborative world, in a social world, and the author in that sense is a kind of stand-up comic who, in the best situation, has an audience that responds and is interacting with that audience rather than simply being, you know, some Olympian on a hill providing <laughs> this perfect text sure. to everyone. Yeah. The public impacts the story, the narrative being told. Right, exactly. Now, John, have you run into this in your own writing experiences? It's it's really hard to find where your ideas start and someone else's ideas begin. Right. And, and I think the best, as much fun as it is, and as we've alluded here in the show, to really dig into what it is, you're never really going to know the answer. you got to <laughs> bake the cake decide who's going to eat it, and then work on the next cake. Don't worry about the ingredients necessarily or where they came from, where the flour was harvested. Uh, do your job as the writer and take whatever it is that's stuck in your consciousness that drove you to the keyboard and see that through and then move on to the next My one. My only qualification job. is use only the finest dim and incubus pressed oil in your cakes. <laughs> <laughs> Well said, sir. Indeed, everybody should hold themselves to a high standard. Gentlemen, the, the clock has manifested pure raw evil. It's raging at me, uh, uh, threatening to to transform into a, a clockware. Uh, I have no idea what that is, but I don't want to find out. I can only assume that means that we are out of time. Uh, Rob King, sir, this has been a delight. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we'll... Dude, we're going to do this again someday. I guarantee it. This hmm. was this was fabulous. John, there was some there was some epiphanies. I had epiphanies during that conversation. I'm sure there was some some writerly goodness for you. What are you taking away from this conversation? You're going to tuck into your into your writer's toolbox. Well, I think that uh, I'm all a quiver to stick into my quiver the idea that it's okay <laughs> to play with the crazy that comes into your mind in the real world. Not so much as in the pen world, um, but everybody has that moment where the subway's coming and they're thinking, what if I jumped or maybe if I pushed this guy? So I'm going to try to follow more crazy in my writing to get to the questions that matter more than my solid concrete builder brain can come up with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and the, it's interesting. The thing that stuck out for me is, is, a, is a corollary to that. Um, I agree that, that, that crazy is, is, you know, the fine line between genius and insanity. Uh, and that's true of our characters and our stories as well as ourselves. Mm. So pushing that envelope can open up some new, new vistas. Uh, for me, it was when Rob was talking about uh, uh, how authors and, and referring to horror, but I think it's true for pretty much all fiction writers is we, we see what things, what we think things should be and we see how things are. And the degree of conflict between our vision of how things should be and, and the truth that we are currently confronted with, but that, that intersection is critical to the creative mind. I'm going to tweak mine to agree with you. Not embrace the crazy so much as embrace the chaos and the destabilizing things you're not sure are right or wrong. Yeah, very much so. And, and, and really... That, that speaks, I think, to the very heart of why we write in the first place. Because we should and be we, medicated. 
<laughs> well, there's always that. That's always true. Uh, well, friends, there you go. Uh, uh, 20-esque minutes uh, of, of writerly goodness poured into your ears. Uh, uh, that was fabulous. It gets better because just seven days from now, we're going to have Rob back. We're going to have John back. And then we're going to add to the mix a courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous guest writer who is going to throw down with a story idea that is going to detonate into an epic brainstorm, a fabulous story workshop that's going to take us, I have no idea where. Uh, uh, and and if you want to find out, you're going to have to come back in seven days. And I know that's a long damn time to make you wait. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is around here at the round table. John, what, what, what can our listeners do between now and seven days from now to, to make that time just, just, just whiz by? Well, there's always the temptation, but I encourage our listeners to stay true to their hearts. Stay away from the demon Twitter and go right. <laughs> Indeed. Get thee behind me, Twitter Stophiles. Yes. <laughs> and go right. Because if you aren't writing, your stories aren't in the world, and the world needs your tales. So do that thing, friends. And I will tell you, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for the wow. Look for the Oh, hell yeah. Look for that amazing stuff out in the world. And I swear to you, friends, if you look for it, you will find it. We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter, at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.